To Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. And I'm Richard Wells. And today we're discussing The Sea Wolves, released June 5th, 1981. It was written by Reginald Rose, based on a book by James Leeser, directed by Andrew B. McClaglin, and released by Rank Film Distributors, who last season distributed Nicholas Rogue's Bad Timing. The real Goa raid was codenamed Operation Creek, a.k.a. Operation Longshanks. They commissioned a barge called Phoebe at Calcutta and sailed around India to Goa. They sunk the German ship Ehrenfels in March of 1943 and then broadcast a false warning that the British intended to invade Goa. In response, German ships Drakenfels and Braunfels were repositioned defensively in Goa's harbor and quickly captured by the British. Producer Ewan Lloyd was recovering from surgery in the hospital when he was gifted James Leeser's novel, The Boarding Party, which tells the story of the top-secret World War II mission, which had been kept entirely under wraps before the book's publication in 1978. So nobody even knew about this mission until the book came out. I didn't know about this mission until the end of the movie. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Though technically the film is based on a combination of several clandestine World War II operations. Lloyd quickly acquired the screen rights and hired his The Wild Geese collaborator, Reginald Rose, to adapt the novel to the screen. He funded the project out of pocket with private loans and retitled the story The Sea Wolves. In some markets, it also carries the subtitle The Last Charge of the Calcutta Light Horse. That's a better name. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the version that we watched was called The Sea Wolves, The Last Charge of the Calcutta Light Horse. But Mm. I also asked you guys to bring alternate titles because I don't care for sea wolves. Yeah, no, I don't get sea wolves at all. I'm worried that I might have the same title as one of you, but we'll see. Jess, do you want to share your your alternate title for this film? (laughs) Well, before I watched the movie, you asked me to make the title and I said Land Piranhas. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm guessing that's not your title. I think you also said folks with three F's. Yeah, I think that might have been an answer, too. <laughs> Richard, what do you have? Uh, oh, uh, are those your, your final answers? Oh, I answers? mean, I have, I, I have a few You have more? more? Oh, okay. I mean, do you want... I only, we, I only have one. I just brought I, one. Oh, yeah. okay. I mean, I kind of... And I, I feel like I came up with these just now because you were listing things from the actual operation, but I liked the title, A Barge Called Phoebe. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's and, good. Go away. Nice. <laughs> That's good. Uh, Longshanks was a better answer. Yeah. yeah. Or yeah, that was it, right? And there was th- what was the actual operation called? Well, Operation Longshanks was one of them, and the other one was uh, Operation Creek. Creek, which is well, kind of. Lame. I mean, it's still better than Sea Wolves, probably. Maybe. There you go. Um, I came up with Operation Christopher Columbus. Oh, okay. Uh, it's a bit of a heady one because there are three ships. And they're India going to India, right? So it was kind of like there's there's a little bit to that, like, yeah. Uh, but the, yeah, but you would have had to probably write that into the story somewhere where they would make a reference to it so that 
people right. didn't have to think that hard about it. Exactly. Like, <laughs> I was trying to think of, like, okay, India, three ships, India, three ships. It's like, well, <laughs> Christopher Columbus was trying to get to India, wasn't he? Right. It, w- it would have been good if they, like, codenamed them, like, you know, when they the were. The Nina, the Pinta. Yeah, the if they yeah. were speaking of them in that way. So my alternate title was Old Dogs of War because it's just the plot of Dogs of War. But with elderly people, well, I was gonna, I was gonna do that when you, uh, when you got to the, when they got to the training montage and they're <laughs> on te- the boat, they're yeah. teaching the old men how to, uh, how to shoot, and I'm like, when was the last time, uh, you know, a mercenary <laughs> operation of men learning how to shoot on the on way some to- old rickety yeah. ship on the way to <laughs> where they were gonna take over. Yeah. They weren't learning to shoot; they were testing out the weaponry, though, right? Yeah, but in they, both examples, they, they were. They yeah. looked similar to the bunch of random kids that they had taken them, you know, to, uh, I don't remember where Dogs of War took place. What was that? Do you remember what country was it was? Was it the Republic of Congo or something like, like a, that? I thought it was like a fictional, oh, fictional it? African nation. Oh, okay. All right. Well, that's why I don't remember. <laughs> Zangaro. Yeah, that's right. Initially, producer Lloyd envisioned the film as a vehicle for reteaming the Wild Geese stars Richard Burton, Roger Moore, and Richard Harris, but only one of these three would eventually appear. I could totally see Richard Harris being in this movie, though. Yeah. Yeah. Charlton Heston was reportedly in talks for a lead role, but Gregory Peck was quickly signed on to replace Burton when he passed on the project. And David Niven stepped into the Harris role after he was deemed too young for the part and was vetoed by Peck. Burton reportedly regretted passing on the film, even though I think the movie cost $12 million and it made $220,000, so... It's not like it was a successful film, but I think he just thought it looked fun watching it. Oh, it might have, might have been fun to shoot. Maybe. It's, I don't know. Like, I, like I wouldn't look at this being like, damn, I missed out on this one. Yeah. <laughs> the film shot on location in New Delhi and Goa, India, where the story took place. Four German survivors of the raid actually served as advisors on the set of the film. Interesting. Oh, wow. Okay. They hired Nazis they hired to advise us. them on the film. The film opens with a dedication. This film is dedicated to the memory of the last honorary colonel of the Calcutta Light Horse, Admiral of the Fleet, the Earl Mountbatten of Burma, KG 1900-1979. You Nazis don't mind if we dedicate this to the guys who murdered your friends, right? Yeah, that's fine, right? If you'll recall from our conversation last season, Lord Louis Mountbatten, the great-uncle of Prince Charles, was assassinated by explosion in 1979. The same explosion injured Mirror Cracked producer John Braborn, which we discussed in our review of that film. Mountbatten was made an honorary member of the Calcutta Light Horse in 1947, the same year the group disbanded after India won its independence from Britain. Mountbatten had composed the foreword to James Leeser's novel, on which the film was based, just a year prior to his assassination. We open picture with a map of India, comped over splashing ocean water, and a James Bond-esque crosshair rises into frame, taking aim at various ships and triggering explosions. We know why. (laughs) You'll never guess who designed these titles. (laughs) Maurice Binder. I asked on Twitter. It's Binder. It's not Binder. Oh, really? Yep. We drop into a German U-boat, loading torpedoes and identifying British ships from the water. From their conversation, it seems that someone has accurately predicted the location of these ships. They fire a torpedo, and we cut to India. Uh, I'm going to put a pin in this. Because I feel like this is a plot thread that's never really cleared up, and it really bothered me by the end of the movie. Okay. Uh, what do you mean? Where is this information coming from? It's never revealed. Well, yeah, they, we don't know who the mole is specifically. Yeah, that's there, true. there there is a mole in British intelligence, and that's that is never 
tackled. We I mean, just it, know where the information is being transmitted from, right, but we yeah, don't know right, who's right. feeding it to them. Correct. David Niven as Colonel W.H. Grice, or Grease, I think it's Grease, drives an open-top car through a crowded street and picks up an acquaintance with a cane, Jack Cartwright. They're in a rush to hear some news, and Colonel Grease drives like a madman, terrifying his friend. They arrive in the courtyard of the Calcutta Light Horse. They step up to a bar and try to joke around, but are shushed by a crowd listening to the radio. It's good news. Led by future U.S. President General Eisenhower, the American forces have made successful landings in North Africa, a subject we've seen previously last season in the Big Red One and earlier this year for Lion of the Desert. The Americans are receiving naval and air support from Britain. We cut to a game of cricket being played in a field behind the bar. Colonel Lewis Pugh, played by Gregory Peck, is served a drink as he watches the game. He stands and steps into the bar to join Colonel Grease and his friend Jack Cartwright, as played by Trevor Howard, at a table. Pugh works for SOE, Special Operations Executive, and Cartwright is jealous because he's here farming tea for the war effort. I'm just a bloody tea planter. What's tea got to do with the war? I'm told it's good for morale. And, of course, you know, I'm like, he works for search engine optimization? No, that's oh, SEO. Yeah, I know. I'm dyslexic. <laughs> <laughs> Search, search, search optimization engines. Cartwright is curious as to the nature of Pew's operations in this part of the world, and Pew is evasive with his answers until Cartwright understands that he is intruding and steps away. When they're alone together, Grease admits that as a manager of a chemical plant, he is also jealous of the hands-on work that Pew's team are often doing. Grease makes mention of Pew's family having been killed in some attack and refers to Pew's efforts as an opportunity for revenge. Pew is a bit disgusted at this interpretation and says that he finds no satisfaction in his work because it doesn't diminish his anger or his loss. Grease very blatantly asks Pew to please consider the Calcutta light horse if there's ever a batshit crazy operation that nobody else would go for because his men here are all bored to tears. I don't think he actually says batshit crazy. He literally says, no, he doesn't. <laughs> I would love to hear David Niven say batshit crazy. <laughs> yeah. Pew says it isn't likely to come up, but Grease reiterates that his men are all willing and ready regardless. We cut to Captain Gavin Stewart, as played by Roger Moore, hopping into a jeep at Army headquarters in New Delhi. He heads to the Ministry of Economic Warfare, where he meets with Gregory Peck as Pew and Patrick Allen as Colin McKenzie. They're looking over the paperwork on a series of ships sunk by German U-boats. U-boats know exactly where and when to strike. Incredibly accurate information, etc., etc., Last night, they were able to locate a powerful transmitter and believe it to be the source of the intel. Pew assumes the job is to blow up the transmitter, but the job's a bit more complicated because the transmitter is in Goa, which is a neutral territory. Roger Moore, as Stewart, predicts that the transmitter is on one of several German freighters in the Goa harbor. They were forced on arrival to dismantle all their radio transmitters, but they may have a secret backup system. Mackenzie gives the men permission to investigate the situation. We cut right to a tugboat looping around the Goa Harbor, around the three German ships, the Ehrenfels, the Drachenfels, and the Braunfels. They're not being super discreet, and they take several glances up at the Nazi sailors leaning over the railing. That night, Colonel Pugh and Captain Stewart head into Café Pescadores and locate the owner, Manuel, an old acquaintance of theirs. He finds them a table, and they begin interrogating him about the Germans outside the café, who they recognize from the ship in the harbor. They're stationed on board the Ehrenfels. Stewart offers to bribe Manuel by intentionally losing money gambling at his underground casino in exchange for a favor. Well, it's in exchange for information. Right. Yeah, because they can't blatantly give him money. 
this was their way of giving him money yeah secretly manuel points pew to his office and leads stewart to the casino floor because of course if you're going to hire james bond for your movie you have to sit him down at a roulette table for a little bit and in goa everyone goes to manuel's right <laughs> stewart buys some chips and heads to the roulette table where he is soon joined by mrs cromwell as played by barbara kellerman stewart loses his money very quickly as he flirts with the girl he introduces himself with his real full name a typical james bond move and notices her wedding ring he guesses that her husband might be gambling elsewhere in the room but she explains that he is in fact dead oh i'm sorry i tend to be over charming i really am sorry there's no need to be let's watch our money disappear that thread never really comes back either i thought we were going to kind of find out about the history with her husband and i don't right, think we yeah. do i mean i i imagine it's all cover but I imagine that... Oh, you. Oh, I kind of assumed that she, like, her husband was part of these operations and she's continuing on with mm. whatever was happening. Well, in, in the true story, this woman is based on Trumpetta's actual wife, ah, this character. So it, so it is that she was working with them because of her husband. Right. In Manuel's office, Pew asks him repeatedly to try to recall any meetings between Indian and German agents outside the cafe. The man is sweating profusely, and he apologizes for not paying closer attention. Pew threatens to pay the police to shut down Manuel's casino, and asks that he at least pay closer attention moving forward. Back on the casino floor, Stewart had been betting even odd or red-black, but he suddenly goes all-in on 23, 28, and 29, and Mrs. Cromwell seems impressed. He says he's a tea salesman, and that he'll return to Bombay tomorrow. She apologizes for all that he's lost here tonight. Oh, the way I look at it, I won. I met you, and I would like to meet you again. Perhaps you will, on your next trip. After he leaves, Cromwell collects her chips to leave. She overhears Manuel expressing his concern about being asked to spy for these men. They mention here that the Indian agent is suspected to have a mole on his cheek, but I don't remember where we get that information from. They just sort of... Say, we know for a fact that the yeah. Indian contact has a mole. After they leave, Cromwell catches Manuel outside his office to thank him for what she's won tonight, and she whips out a switchblade from her purse. And we cut back to the Ministry of Economic Warfare, where Mackenzie seems upset that Pew and Stewart are looking for the spies responsible instead of the transmitter specifically. But obviously, if you don't catch the people doing it, right. then this thing is going to rebuild itself. Pew's plan is to locate the head spy and torture him for information, which is a big no-no in neutral territory, and also everywhere, I think. <laughs> Torture is universally frowned upon. Stewart jokes that if they're caught, they can plead insanity. Mackenzie, for some reason, approves the capture of the head spy. As Pew and Stewart head back to the car, they are momentarily distracted by Mackenzie's beautiful secretary, Helen, and the slight speed bump in the film's momentum made me think that Helen is, for sure, the source of the German intel. <laughs> Pew and Stewart book a room at the Hotel Palacio in Goa. Complimentary drinks are sent to their room with a note attached. What's it say? Possible young man is Ram Dasgupta, Indian, about 32. Large mole on right cheek. Clerk for Inter-Europe Shipping Bombay, currently living at 197 Cabral Street, Goa. Known political activist for Indian independence. I think we should meet this fellow. Who is his note from? Stuart makes it sound like it's from Mackenzie, but I thought at first that it was a fake note from the deceased Manuel, and they were heading into a trap. 
But is it from Mackenzie? Who are they getting this information from? I have no idea. Yeah, it's not. It's really not clear. Yeah. It would almost make sense that it was Cromwell wanting to get rid of Gupta. Oh, or, yeah, maybe. Or, or perhaps... Well, like, they're working with Gupta, though. Right, but uh, I guess maybe to, to test him or to to have them follow him around for some reason. Yeah. Because she's too conveniently in the same location when they go to meet with it, when yeah. they go to follow him. It also seems like a liability to hand this note to them folded instead of in an envelope because anybody on the path to them mm-hmm. could read it. They head directly to the address, and as they're arriving, the man with a mole is walking out. If I had some super secret war plan going down, I would for sure not employ a secret agent with a giant fucking mole on his face. <laughs> mole, mole, mole. 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 <laughs> I think the exact same thing. You don't want the guy that could be picked out of a crowd to be in charge of anything discreet. They follow the man across town to Cafe Lisboa. Pew makes a call from inside to their hotel and says 329. He tells the cafe owner that he expects someone to call back, but when the phone rings, he claims it's not for him. Is there someone here named Ram Dasgupta? This call is for Mr. Ram Dasgupta. Perhaps he's outside. The owner heads out to the patio and brings Gupta to the phone. But now that Pew has seen the mole and confirmed the name, Stuart puts a gun in the man's back and they walk him to the restaurant. They tear a newspaper out of his hand and find a note inside describing incoming British ships with their exact cargoes, destinations, and arrival times. They send him back to his table and advise him to go through with his intel handoff the same as he always would. A German agent, played by Wolf Collar, takes a seat at the neighboring table. Pew recognizes him and writes Trompetta across a napkin to show Stewart. The Fatherland's number one agent in Southern Asia. Are you sure? I'm sure. If it's safe to talk about the guy here, it probably would have been better to just say Trompetta instead of creating evidence that someone could easily notice by writing his name on a napkin. Yeah, I mean, I guess... He's more likely to hear his own name. Yeah, that's what I like, you know, like versus just casual conversation, your own name. You know, you hear people say your name and you always turn around. Yeah, but I feel like as a spy, if I heard someone talking about the fatherland or a number one spy, (laughs) I might also turn my head. Yeah, I think I probably wouldn't notice, but I would also be a terrible spy. Do you have that thing? I have that thing where you think people are saying your name when they're not. Like, does that happen to you? No. Okay. Jessica. Yeah, that's it. Like, somebody's whispering your name behind you. <laughs> really no that doesn't that never happens to you no that's awful that would that would give me nightmares it it is terrifying <laughs> i just have sleep paralysis stuff so that <laughs> that's what gets me <laughs> gupta stands to walk away and stewart almost goes after him until pew stops him because this seems to be part of the handoff trumpetta follows him for a moment and later pew follows them both when he catches up with gupta pew gives the man a hard punch in the stomach It seems the handoff has been aborted against Stewart's advice. Stewart spots Mrs. Cromwell walking a dog down the same street. He lies that he's waiting for a business associate and invites her to join him. Pew continues his walk to the docks where Trumpetta shakes his head no to two men waiting on a rowboat to the Ehrenfels and they shove off. Back at the cafe, Stewart asks Cromwell her dog's name. You won't laugh. Guaranteed. Hamlet. But it's not a great day. He doesn't know that. Do you guys recall the last time we made a joke about a great Dane named Hamlet? I do. It's the ninth configuration. That's correct. Cromwell says her first name is Agnes, but Stuart says he's going to keep calling her Mrs. Cromwell. That's rude. 
Yeah. I mean, it's not rude to call her Mrs. Cromwell, but it's rude to say your to name imply is ugly. your name sucks. <laughs> <laughs> it means lamb, lamb of God. Pew continues tailing Trompetta to a small yellow home. Pew arrives back at Cafe Lisboa just as Cromwell is leaving. As they return to the Hotel Palacio, Gupta points them out to probably an assassin. There, those two men. Pew and Stewart plan to abduct Trompetta in the morning. Stewart requests some privacy in the room tonight so that he might meet with Mrs. Cromwell, and Pew agrees to take a walk. That night, he's taking notes on the dock when he's approached by Gupta's man, who asks for a light. Before Pew can answer, a second man tries to strangle him from behind, but Pew catches his arms, kicks the first man, and then throws the strangler against some large machinery. The first man comes back at Pew with a knife, and they trade blows for a bit, but eventually Pew knocks him unconscious with a kick. Pew collects his things and heads back to the room where Stuart and Cromwell are clinking champagne glasses. They kiss and begin undressing each other, and we see Gupta waiting downstairs. Stuart hears Gupta fiddling with the door to their room and rolls out of bed to step toward the man. Gupta threatens to kill them both when Cromwell tosses the champagne bottle at the gunman. Yeah, this is one of many times Stuart is totally unguarded right. in, a, in a shootout situation. He seems like an idiot for this whole movie, actually. Gupta ducks out of the way of the champagne bottle and gives Stuart just enough time to grab the man, bash the gun loose from his hands, and then grapple him into a headlock to snap his neck. He drops Gupta to the floor dead, and Cromwell appears in shock. You killed him. Yes. He was about to kill me. Andrew, that sort of thing tends to make me impulsive. From his perspective, she's shocked at the sight of a man's death, but she seems more surprised to learn that Stuart is not just the tea salesman that he claims to be. Does she not know who he is? Uh, I don't know. Well, I think... Or is she just pretending to be shocked? I think she's pretending to be shocked because she witnessed them having that conversation in the hallway with Manuel. Yeah, so she must have some yeah. understanding of who he is. Yeah, that, I think the whole reason that she's meeting with him is to, to get pumped for information. Right, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, she's... Yeah. She's the one getting pumped for information. She's getting the information, but she's also getting pumped. Cromwell steps out of bed to redress as Pew returns to the room. He hesitates to interrupt until he sees a key in the door. Moving inside, Stuart jabs a gun in his ribs, thinking him another intruder, and then gives him a silent signal to go along with his story while Cromwell prepares to leave. He tells her that Pew is his boss, but it doesn't look like she's buying anything he says at this point. She leaves angry. Stuart asks why Pew has been holding his jaw, and he admits to having been attacked, by a pair of men at the docks. Where are they now? They're resting. It sounds like Mackenzie is basically running this hotel and advised them that in situations like these, the room service will handle the cleanup of Gupta here, no questions asked. The next morning, we see Trompetta leaving his room, and he's quickly abducted by Pew and Stewart as they planned yesterday. As they pull away from Trompetta's home, we see Mrs. Cromwell inside watching them leave. Does she see them here? Yeah, yeah, she's watching them take him. Oh, okay. Yeah, so she 100% knows, at least at this point, Yeah. if she was uncertain, now she is totally certain. Stewart tries to race the car through a checkpoint, but Trompetta is able to lean out the window and announce his kidnapping by foreign agents. Pew and Trompetta wrestle for his gun as Stewart swerves around, intentionally knocking over obstacles into the road to slow the cars chasing them. And it seemed like he specifically hit the telephone line mm -hmm. to, to knock out the telephone line. Yeah, maybe. Because, like, the, right after he knocks that out, some guy's trying to call on the police phone and it's not going through. Right, yeah. In the fight for Pew's gun, Trompetta is shot and killed. There's a lot of instant, like, gut shots and, like, like 
You get shot in the gut and you die immediately. You get stabbed in the guts, you die yeah. immediately. With yeah. a tiny little blade yeah. every time. And it's not like die. they shot him in the head. They shot him in the in the stomach. Yeah. Isn't that the thing like the like the worst place you can get shot because you Because it takes you- several days. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. They decide to dump his body across the border to avoid an international incident. Back at the house, Cromwell opens a sealed code book and starts decoding a message composed of all numbers. Stewart drives the car onto a ferry and bribes the customs official not to check if Trompetta is alive or, or allowed to be where they're going. Yeah, yeah, he just doesn't he doesn't give him papers it at all. It seems clear that he's dead though. Ah, he could be sleeping or yeah. drunk or I don't know. They meet with Mackenzie again, who is furious that they've killed Trompetta, who could have been a very useful asset to them. They've at least narrowed down that the transmitter is on Ehrenfels, but that's not enough for Mackenzie. Unfortunately, Trompetta's death hasn't interrupted the delivery of intel and they've lost three more ships today. Mackenzie wishes aloud that he could simply blow the ship up with commandos, but it's obviously not an option to involve the military that way. Pugh suggests, in place of commandos, a group of volunteer civilians. They could storm the ship to plant explosives, and if they were caught, they could just say, it's a prank, bro, and pretend <laughs> to be drunk foreigners on holiday. I mean, with, with bombs. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, that was kind of my question about this. I'm like, is, even if they're civilians, if they get caught... It's an international incident. Yeah. You know, like, granted, it's not, like, a, a military action. It's still a problem. But isn't it, though, if Gregory Peck is one of the guys? Like, if Pew is on board, isn't that not a civilian group? Well, is he active military? Or is he's, he- he's part of the SEO team. He's making sure they're on page one of Google. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I suppose they could always disavow him. Yeah, that's and, true. Like, and yeah. doctor his records saying that. Yeah, I mean, because he's, he's, he's an older gentleman. So. That's true. They burn easy. And which civilians did you have in mind? The Calcutta Light Horse, sir. The what? It's a part-time territorial unit. They haven't seen action for 40 years. Lewis, you're talking about a mixed bag of boozing, middle-aged, pot-bellied businessmen. No argument. Pew points out that they've all volunteered for active service, but Mackenzie still thinks it's an impossible proposition. They sit in silence, letting the plan simmer in his head for a bit, and Mackenzie quickly approves the ridiculous plan. Yeah. We cut back to the Calcutta light horse, playing polo in the field off the bar. Stuart and Pew explain the whole plan to Greece off camera, but they swear him to secrecy. Are you expecting my men to volunteer without having the faintest idea what they're volunteering for? Right. I thought so. All that the men must know is that it couldn't be more important. It'll be quite risky. And it's top secret. Unfortunately, Bill, there'll be no pay in it. No pensions if anyone's killed or wounded. And no credit. It all sounds unbelievably attractive to me. And I take it no medals if all goes well. No medals. No recognition at all. (laughs) I love it. So will they. So so these guys, this group, to figure out who they are. So they are, do they used to be a unit? They haven't fought since like the Boer War, right? Correct. Or one of them. Yeah. But they they have been stationed here for a very long time, and they're basically part of an occupying force in India. Okay. So they're still in India. Yeah. Yeah. They're in Calcutta. I would would classify them as the old home guard, uh, but just because they, they happen to live in India. And basically, if this movie hadn't gone the way that it went, they would have just lived out the rest of their lives getting drunk and playing games at yeah. this club until they mm. died of old age. Or until 47 when they disbanded. Right. And for those who are unsure, the Old Home Guard was a British kind of plan that 
retired military people in England would help and and kind of patrol and things like that in in emergency like like you would just have these old soldiers like oh, just who wanted to, keep to help India out. under under No, control? no, in England. Oh. This was in England. That's why I said it would be like the old home guard of India if it was there. Right. I I see what you're saying. Okay. Bed knobs and broomsticks. Uh, I learned. That's where I learned a lot about the old yeah. home guard. So, if if my if my information is a bit foggy, um, it's because of that. <laughs> Basically, it was this force made of uh, animated plate mail suits <laughs> that would attack whenever there was a threat. Oh man, that would have made this movie so much better. Right on cue, one of the team, Melbourne, falls off his horse in the polo match. But these are durable chaps, and he's on his feet in no time. The crew of the Ehrenfels are spooked after Trompetta's kidnapping wait, and worried. Wait, wait. Is that what you got out of that moment? That they're durable? He fell off a horse and he just got right up. I know. That's what you do. Was, but he was all like <laughs> old and winded and they were telling him to go sit down and take it easy. And It's like, still faster than I would get up after falling off of that horse. Oh, man. It's just funny because like you took away that, you know, they're resilient and well i get that they're old you can tell they're old by looking at them well, i think I, the point of it was supposed to be that they're not so old that falling off a horse will kill them like I you guess. would expect i don't know it wasn't what i took away from that scene the crew of the Ehrenfels are spooked after trumpetta's kidnapping and worried that they may be attacked even in this neutral harbor the captain orders explosives rigged on the ship and searchlights installed. What? How That's is a that? terrible plan. Yeah, I don't. Know. I mean, I, they're obviously they're not allowed to have weapons because you right. know they're in a neutral harbor and the mm-hmm. you know they took away their radio, they took away the weapons. Like, but what team are you on if you're trying to bomb your own ship? That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Like if this if they're under attack, lighting your ship on fire doesn't seem like the best idea. Yeah. In order to keep them from destroying our priceless transmitter, we'll destroy our priceless transmitter. <laughs> <laughs> Back at the Calcutta Light Horse. Greece puts out a call to arms in search of 15 volunteers, and every arm goes up. They leave in a week. They're gone for two. Tell your wives you've been called for training exercises. Everyone signs up, and it's up to Pew, Stewart, and Greece to whittle the group down. Greece tries to pull Jack Cartwright out of line, fearing him too old for the mission, but Cartwright is insistent. Eventually, though, Greece does talk him out of the line. On a beach in Goa, Cromwell is reading a book when a nearby volleyball game gets out of hand, and a man falls in front of her. He apologizes for intruding, and she rattles off all the info from the coded message. We cut back to Greece's office at the Calcutta Light Horse. The plan starts with stealing a ship to get everyone to Goa, but this is a fabrication of the film. The boat was actually paid for, in the true story. Yeah, I'm not sure why they had to steal it. To draw more attention to themselves. No, I think it was just because they didn't really have a good excuse for commissioning it. So they had to steal it because they but didn't want to answer I mean, questions. I, I guess maybe somebody's going to be like, oh, this group bought a boat. But like, I would rather buy a boat and have it not be a shitty boat. Yeah, that's true. I find it hard to believe that none of them own any kind of yacht. But I guess you don't <laughs> want to be caught with your own boat. Yeah, maybe. Well, and maybe and maybe it needed to be crappy because that's more inconspicuous. Or so that they could ditch it if they needed to. Yeah. Grease says that he can captain and that his man Wilton knows engines. Stewart is in charge of arranging diversions in the harbor so that they're less likely to encounter resistance on the mission. Jack Cartwright enters the office one last time to make a case for himself. His son died in Burma and this is his last chance to avenge him. Grease politely turns him down again, but Stewart interrupts to take the man on, realizing that Cartwright would happily die in the course of completing this mission, and Grease reluctantly approves. The Nazis flank their ship with explosives and spotlights, 
And then we get a montage of the selected Calcutta light horsemen exercising. Their wives are all confused at the sudden regimen. Good God, what are you doing? Just turning up. What on earth for? My health. Well, mind your hernia, dear. One guy is practicing boxing and accidentally punches a platter out of his server's hands. Melbourne is doing push-ups in his office and confusing his secretary. Mr. Melbourne, are you all right? No, I'm just having a, a private heart attack. Get out, Miss Wentworth. Pugh and Stewart go to see a man from Force 136 named Yogi Crossley, played by Patrick McNee. He's standing on his head in the office, and they quickly let him in on the whole operation. He's delighted to be brought aboard. We cut to a boat called Phoebe in the Calcutta Harbor. Stewart is a little worried at its dilapidated state, but Pew thinks it's perfect. Grease's wife catches him shaving at night and suspects him of cheating on her. She doesn't believe the training exercise story, but believes him when he tells her that there's no one but her in his heart. He gives her kisses and smears shaving cream all over her face. Ooh, hot. Pew packs his bags, and we see the team assembling outside the Phoebe. It's almost a scene we saw last year in Folks, where the team hijack a small ship in a harbor on the way to blowing up oil platforms instead of a transmitter. The men flood aboard the ship and surprise its unsuspecting crew with guns, even knocking a few out with pistol whips, which seems unnecessary. These are just innocent people working on a boat. You could kill them doing that. Or you could just kill them, period. Yeah. Because it seems like they have them working for them later on. Right. They load up the boat with their supplies... Greece is not confident in the ship's ancient engine. Belongs in a museum. So do some of us. Cheer up. All of you. All of you belong in a museum. Pew gets a bit of a John Hammond moment and cracks open a bottle of champagne to celebrate. I've been saving this for a long time. Now I know why. The ship leaves with about half the team and the rest will take trains across India and then board the ship on the other side of the country just down the coast from their target. I don't know why, though. Yeah, because it seems like they're all going to have to need weapons practice and they're not gonna be able to do that on the yeah they can't do it on the train yeah um i guess it's not as conspicuous or if maybe if the men have to carry on the mission without the other half yeah if something happens to the boat maybe yeah the few men aboard suffer bouts of seasickness yogi eats a banana in front of one of them to rub in how easy this is for him and the man erupts overboard again in the bowels of the ship wilton is taking a crash course in this ancient engine being taught by Rom, a man who was basically stolen or like kidnapped to help run the engine. Was he or did they bring him along from like I don't was he I don't remember seeing him before them getting on the boat. That's fair, but like it seems weird that they would have that that they would be going along with this. Oh you kidnapped our boat. All right, I'll keep the engine going. Yeah. Well better than being stranded out in the ocean, I guess. Yeah. I suppose. Wilton already regrets having volunteered for this position. Tubes of fluid are randomly bursting around them, and they can barely plug a leak before another one springs. Stewart walks along a beach with Cartwright to explain his part in the mission, and it sounds like a cakewalk. Almost an insulting one. If anyone falls overboard, they will swim to this beach, and Cartwright will row them out of Goa. Stewart sounds very patronizing as he tries to puff up Cartwright's ego. Jack Cartwright, entire onshore rescue and first aid team. There's an uncomfortable moment on the train where Melbourne loses his balance, as he prepares for bed, and he falls on Pew. Thank God you're not my wife. Any kind of physical contact brings on the most outrageous sexual demands. The woman's insatiable. Sorry about that. Good thing you're not my wife or we'd totally be fucking right now. (laughs) But we're not going to do that, are we? 
right? Are we, Are Pew? We? Maybe? Pew. Are we? <laughs> Melbourne tries to pry more information about the mission, but Pew simply turns out the light to imply a rejection. It's nice that they had, they had a private room on this train. Yeah. From everything I've seen about trains in India. You have to ride on the outside. <laughs> yeah, it is anything but private. The rest of the men on the ship try to guess what their mission will be. Only one of the men is calm enough to sleep on the ride. Lovecroft, as played by William Morgan Shepard. Cartwright goes to meet with Stewart in his room and catches the tail end of a phone conversation. Stewart is trying to locate a number for Cromwell and having no luck. They leave together to put some cash in a safety deposit box at the bank. One of the ship's lookouts spots a periscope on the horizon off the starboard bow and scrambles the crew, but on closer inspection, it's actually a shark's fin off the port bow. That's the port bow, idiot! Stewart goes to visit with Mr. Montero, a man with the governor's ear. He asks Montero to convince the governor to throw a party and to invite all the local port officials. At the same time, Montero is to arrange a carnival to attract all the crews of the local ships. In exchange, Stewart offers to pay for the education of Montero's sons, who are at a British school in India. Montero accepts the offer and Stewart hands him some cash up front to make things happen. But he also offers a parting warning that if anything should go wrong, his sons may pay a price, which is kind of dark. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I assume he just means that they'll stop paying for school, but it's just vague enough to also mean, I'm going to cut off your children's heads. Yeah. And it'll even get darker with his threats yeah. later. The rest of the team gets off the train and load into cars. Stewart heads back to Manuel's underground casino in search of Cromwell and finds her there. She doesn't want to talk to him. Please. How's Hamlet? Damn it! They sit together at a table and he apologizes for their last encounter. She eyes the knife in her purse briefly. She asks him to confirm that he has killed before and he admits to having done so during his time in the military but that it's not a regular hobby of his. Next you're going to accuse me of killing the poor unfortunate owner of this place. It had crossed my mind. But what he doesn't know is that she killed the owner of this place. Mm Mm-hmm. He asks if they can pick up where they left off, and she doesn't say no, and they order some wine. In Cochin, the Calcutta Light Horsemen are hanging out around a pool waiting for their ship to come in. Pew calls them to attention and says Phoebe gets here tomorrow. They're all instructed to arrive at the ship separately after buying a couple bottles of whiskey at the local bazaar. Phoebe is spotted by the German U-boat, and they briefly consider surfacing to sink it with the deck gun, since the old riverboat would be a waste of a torpedo. They decide it isn't worth their time or the risk and dive to 10 fathoms. Jack Cartwright approaches the local whorehouse posing as a German. He meets with a pimp who looks like an Indian Ted Cruz and (laughs) says that he's here to buy out their services for three days. As a former sailor himself, he would like to make a gift. Every sailor in town is welcome to free sex on his dime. He pays the man up front and asks him to spread the word around the city. They're going to be spreading a lot around the city. (laughs) (laughs) What a beautiful thing you do, sir. We cut to Cromwell and Stuart in bed together again. She tells him that she must head home and that he can't take her there. He gives her privacy to dress and time to think, and she uses a bar of soap to make an imprint of his room key. That night, the last of the men arrive for the rowboat to Phoebe. Cartwright returns, a bit intoxicated from drinks with the pimp, and Stewart advises him to lie down for a while. Cartwright was flattered by something the pimp told him. As he was taking the rest of the money, he called me a true benefactor of all whores and seamen. Rather appropriate play on words, don't you think? Stewart shares the news that he's located Cromwell, and Cartwright is happy for him. Outside, Cromwell waits for Stewart to leave and heads back up to the room with her key copy. She digs through his luggage to find out more about him, and in a closet, she finds an invitation to the governor's ball tonight in a suit pocket. 
Trying to pry open the drawer of his nightstand, she accidentally knocks a lamp to the floor, and Cartwright hears it shatter from the next room. He steals the maid's key and uses that to enter Stewart's room. His key pushes out Cromwell's fake key and gives her notice to hide. When he finally notices her behind the door, she lunges forward with her knife and plunges it into his chest, killing him, and he drops dead. Again, instantly from a chest stab. Yeah. And it's a tiny knife. Like, this yeah. knife is, like, maybe four inches long yeah. and, like, you know, three quarters of an inch wide. Like, it's tiny. Perhaps it is poisoned. Ah. Does, ah. does plus two poison damage. <laughs> that is that is the women's uh, weapon, right? Poison. Poison, yeah. Maybe she put a little bit of poop on the end of it. Punchy stab. <laughs> on board the Phoebe, Greece finally informs his men of their mission. They're headed to Goa Harbor to seize the Ehrenfels or sink it where it is. If they have time, they will also target two other German ships in the same harbor. Wilton informs them that the engine is currently in bad shape, and he will need to stop down to make some repairs that may or may not even work. If they don't pause, the engine will certainly fail. Pew agrees to take time for repairs. We cut to a church where Stuart and Cromwell meet. A German watches from the back row of pews. Apparently she asked him to meet here over the phone. She tells him they can try to start things over at the governor's party tonight, which is a dumb thing to say if you don't want him to think you've been snooping. Yeah. Stuart asks how they can get in without invitations, and she says that she happens to be invited. By claiming not to have an invitation, though, Stuart has given away that he isn't being completely honest with her. Although I guess she already knew that. They agree to attend the party together. I think that they're trying to sow the seed that she might be falling for him and she has conflicting feelings. Yeah, and, and that's a typical Bond yeah. thing, too. Mm-hmm. And, and that if he's honest with me, with this, if I get him in a, in a, in a lie, then I know he's lying to me. Like, I know, right. like, he's, this love isn't real. Right. She gives him her address, but it's different than the address where they picked up Trompetta. The German in the back puts a note under a prayer candle and leaves, and on her way out, Cromwell retrieves the note. The Phoebe is dead in the water as repairs are attempted. Wilton finishes his work, and they get the engine started again. Everyone celebrates. Hoses are still leaking in every direction, but Wilton doesn't seem as worried about them now. The German U-boat prepares to attack some nearby American ships, and we cut back to the Phoebe, where the men are practicing their shooting. Yogi teaches the men how to apply limpet mines. Stewart returns to his room and finds Cartwright dead on the floor. He should suspect Cromwell immediately, since she's the only other person who's visited this room, and she seemed to know that he had an invitation to the governor's party tonight, so clearly she's been here. Stewart calls room service again, and they discreetly dispose of the body. I didn't know I could call room service for that. At this place you can. <laughs> it's on Mackenzie's dime. But the other thing that's weird to me is that it's like, what... What purpose does he have to go to this party for? Is there a reason to go? Alibi? Uh, is there yeah. is an alibi necessary? I mean, I feel like... The mission's going to be over tonight. It, it, yeah, but he but he was bribing people to make this happen. If he doesn't show up, like... They're like, not going to, like, cancel the party and send everybody home if no, he doesn't no, no, show no. up. No, no, no. I think it was more like if he doesn't show up, they'd be like, what the hell were you doing during this party that you had me throw? I don't know. It just seems like he doesn't, he doesn't actually have it's not a part of his mission to go to the party and do anything. Mm-hmm. So it seems weird that he would still go to this party when his friend just died. Like, why wouldn't he be here mourning with his friend and helping the guy take care of it? Yeah. He really has no other. He's done. Function. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He's wrapped for the mission. Stewart arrives at 21 Tacoma street to pick up Cromwell. 
He's led by a butler to a waiting room where two German agents burst in with guns blazing. One gets him in the elbow, but Stuart kills them both. Yeah, it's it's such an awkward fight. Like, they come in with their guns already drawn, and he has time to get up and throw a lamp? Yeah. I was like, you'd be He dead. was in the corner of the room. He should have eight holes in his face. Yeah, there was no reason to keep him alive. Like, they should have just come in and started shooting. Yeah, they also should have shot him from behind him. Mm-hmm. They should have set him up somewhere that they could shoot him without him knowing that they were coming. The butler tries to make a run for it, and Stuart tackles him halfway down the hall, demanding Cromwell's location. Pew addresses the men to remind them of their mission. They are civilians who boarded the Ehrenfels on a drunken dare. They are instructed to ditch their weapons if captured and reminded to swim to Cartwright if thrown overboard. Charlie Wilton has to stay on board to keep the engine running, and he isn't excited about it. Yes, sir. Shit, sir. (laughs) Charlie, you really do have a way with words. Everyone is invited to take a swig of the whiskey they bought. Stewart switches to a black tux to hide his bloodstains. The sailors are overflowing at the whorehouse. When Stewart gets to the party, Montero sees him enter. Sorry. They're overflowing? overflowing? (laughs) Gross. (laughs) Stewart spots Cromwell in the crowd, and he's so furious to see her that his eye starts twitching. (laughs) (laughs) He interrupts her chat with the governor to introduce himself, and Cromwell is obviously surprised to find him here. Stewart steals her away to the dance floor, and he lies that he was exceptionally late picking her up, and that by the time he got to 31 Tacoma Street, there was nobody home, so he came straight here, explaining why he's still alive. Gavin, it's 21. Not 31? There you are, I am an idiot. Agreed, but rather nice one. She asks how he made it inside without an invitation, and he says that he crossed the Major Domo's palm. Does that mean that he bribed the guy to get in here? Yeah. Is he talking about bribing Montero specifically? Is that the majordomo? Uh, I just assumed he bribed somebody. Yeah. But he could just as well have... Like, my excuse would have been, I actually had an invitation, but I wanted to go as your guest or, or something like that. Like, It just seems like that would be really hard to backtrack. And it's like, mm. but when we were in the church, I said, we should come to this party. And you said, how are either of us going to get an invitation? And you had one. Mm. Why don't you just say, yeah, that's great, I have an invitation. Stuart leads Mrs. Cromwell to a side room where they might be obliged to kiss in private, and Montero follows them out of the room. They kiss in a side office for a while, and she offers to wipe the lipstick off his face. With a napkin, she also retrieves the knife from her purse, and just as she moves to stab him, Stuart turns her hand around and plunges it into her own chest. This was kind of subtle. Like, I mean, not subtle in that she stabbed herself, but like, they don't get a super good angle on him moving her hand. I right. had to back mm-hmm. it up to double check. And I'm like, he did that to her, right? Like, yeah, yeah he, and he did it on purpose because he knew yeah. she was going to try this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, I, and I get that now. But I'm like, he could have made it a little bit more obvious. It was really hidden in the quick cut and the and the bad angle. Well, I, I think that the sudden thing was you weren't exactly sure who was stabbed in that moment. Yeah, they wanted like, you to question it until someone fell out of the shot. Yeah. I guess they wanted you to question it, but at the same time, I then w- you know was questioning. And I'm like, 
did she fall in love with him and just do this to herself? Like, oh, because interesting. I was, I wasn't thinking about it because I was like, did his hand even enter that picture? I don't know. And so I had to back it up and check yeah. again. Well, it, there's a couple places too, uh, before this that I feel like I kind of appreciated that they didn't spell things out so much. Like for example, when she presses the key into the soap and she just comes back and has another key, they don't bother to show her like, making another key based on the shape that she had yeah. in the soap or anything like that. She just comes back and she has one. You're supposed to just understand where it came well, from. Well, and I know if I had, you know, just kept watching it, I would have gotten the gist of it that, she, you know, she was trying to stab him yeah. and he, you know, switched that around on her. But in the very moment itself, it was hard to tell. Yeah. I feel like it would be weird if she was stabbing herself because it would just be like, I'm. why did I even get this knife out of my purse i could have just changed sides and been with you but then she just got close to him and was like ah, i'm dead i deserve <laughs> okay, this okay yeah Trust it, me. it wasn't the smartest thing that i was questioning again no i get but there's <laughs> there's other things in the movie that make little sense also so i i understand she's very shocked to have been fooled by this man and she dies in his arms because so far he's been a complete idiot like he didn't know until two germans burst through the door started shooting at him that she was even yeah. an agent he had picked up zero clues so far. Yeah. In the true story, Trompetta and Mrs. Cromwell, or the person Cromwell is based on, were husband and wife and died not in dramatic cinematic accidents, but together while being tortured for information. Aww. Yeah. Oh, they tortured them together? Yeah, isn't that sweet? It's like those toilets that are connected. I was just thinking about the connected toilets. He seems to legitimately mourn her for a moment, and then he yanks the eavesdropping Montero into the room. Would you care to join her? Well, I assume you've seen nothing. Am I correct? They walk together back through the crowded party, and Stuart reminds Montero that his children will pay the price if this isn't handled well. And the laugh. Laugh it off. And Montero's like trying to fake laugh, but just sucking at it because he's terrified. But it's also like, wait a minute, who is this guy? Like, yeah. he gave me a stack of money, and he said he was going to take care of my kid's education. So that he could kill this woman at the governor's mansion? <laughs> like, wh- what What did I just participate in? Yeah. Uh, and also, he's clearly British. Right. And up to something here in Portugal-owned Goa. Yeah. We cut to a parade in the streets of Goa. Historically, this operation took place on the last night of Carnival. Stuart is stuck driving behind the festivities. The men on the Phoebe select their weapons from a massive pile. Stuart heads to Cartwright's Beach where he's been buried by the employee of the Hotel Palacio. Seems like a terrible plan to bury someone in beach sand, but it's not my operation, so go ahead, do what you want. He tells the hotel man to drive his car back to the Palacio. Stewart stands over Cartwright, and a fireworks display begins. The town seems thoroughly distracted. On the boat, Pew invites the men to each take another big swallow, and then drench themselves in the remaining whiskey in the first bottle. I want every man here to smell like a distillery. The second bottles are to celebrate after the mission is successful. The men on board the Ehrenfels are literally 17 minutes away from reporting the location of an American aircraft carrier, a huge win for the German war effort. Pew warns the men against unnecessary gunfire. They are to leave no equipment or men behind. Even the dead need to be brought back to avoid implicating Britain. Pew tells Yogi to set the limpet mines for 30 minutes. Stewart watches the Phoebe float by from the shore. Wilton prays beside his sloppy engine. The riverboat rattles up alongside the Ehrenfels, but the crew of the Ehrenfels are singing songs on board loud enough that they don't hear the boat approach. Lovecroft completes his pirate uniform by taking out his glass eye and throwing on an eye patch. 
Apparently, William Morgan Shepard lost his right eye in a botched surgery oh. and wore a glass one throughout his career. I never noticed that. Yeah. It honestly feels like they could have pulled this whole mission off with just Yogi's limpet mines. I'm, I'm not yeah. quite sure why they had to go on the boat at all. Well, I guess just to verify that the transmitter is, in fact, destroyed. I guess, yeah. But it definitely uh, would have worked either way. But yeah. you could have put these mines on all three boats and just been done with it, right? Yeah, right. It would have taken three people to do. Because I, I'm assuming that's what the guy on the rowboat's doing. Yeah. Like, he's going off to mine the other ships. Right. But uh, for some reason, this crew absolutely needs to board. And Yeah, I guess. A lot, a lot of this doesn't make sense because they're all heavily armed. So, like, and they're inside. If they're caught inside, they can't ditch their weapon. I, I also think it's weird to not implicate the British when they're when they're walking around the ship, speaking clearly Englishmen. Yeah, carrying guns and taking people prisoner and trying not to kill people. Right. I'm like, there's witnesses that you were here with weapons as British people. Yeah. They just don't have proof that they can take to an international court. But it doesn't matter because it's wartime right now. The men toss rafts overboard beside the Phoebe, and Pew leads his men up the gangway to board the Ehrenfels. When a sailor notices them boarding, Pew shoots the man in the gut, and he falls overboard, but his splash perfectly coincides with the explosion of some fireworks. The limpets are set for 30 minutes, so they have to get in and out quick. The Calcutta light horse catch the crew of the Ehrenfels from behind, watching the fireworks display, and take them all hostage, which seems counterintuitive. When another sailor notices them climbing some stairs, Yogi kicks the man in the face, rendering him unconscious before he can bring it to anybody's attention. The men advance on the captain's quarters, where three men are playing cards. Lovecraft is sent in and captures them all. Just as the men locate the radio room, they're caught in a spotlight, and Grease quickly shoots the bulb and then the sailor manning it. Unfortunately, though, we get a quick insert, and the spotlight man is not quite dead. Grease finds the funk room, says funk realm on the sign <laughs> which must be german for radio room but when he kicks in the door he sees only frayed wires because this is the fake radio room or well, it, it used to it be the real radio the room, real radio room and they it, agreed to disassemble yeah. it in exchange for keeping their freighter here but it's obviously not the room they're they're transmitting from we see the spotlight sailor crawling away melbourne leads a team into the ship's mess hall and captures all the men singing along to the guitar playing on board we get a quick insert of the limpet mines ticking. Grease wraps plastic explosive around some of the ship's inner workings and pulls the pin on an igniter, which is timed, I guess. I've never seen one of these. Yeah, it's I just mean, kind of like a stick with a pin, and you set a timer on it somehow. Yeah, yeah. It, I feel like they're, you know, the don't shoot people kind of thing has first of all gone straight out the window, but then you're also making excessive amounts of noise by blowing off doors. Mm -hmm. And like, why hasn't everybody who's left on this ship come running at this yeah. point? Yeah. Well, I think a lot of them are, are in town having sex right no, now. No, I know that, but there is still a good chunk of people on this ship as we yeah. are about to find out. Moving down a corridor, Yogi is snatched up by a huge sailor and Pew knocks the assailant out with another pistol whip, but it looks like he hits him in the back like, I'm not sure how that knocks anybody out, especially this big fella. The men in the real radio room are pacing back and forth. In the hall, Pew finds a room labeled Proviantrum, or Food Room, and asks Yogi to blow the door. He starts another little plastic explosive trigger, and the men in the radio room grab a gun from the drawer between them. Pew and Yogi enter the wrong room again, but the radio men, alerted by the sound, put out a report of intruders via Morse code. Turns out they aren't in the wrong room, and the entrance to the secret radio room is actually behind a shelf in the food room. 
They blow open a second doorway, and Pew rushes in to blow away both of the radio men. Pew finds Grease and tells him to order everyone overboard. They steal all the code books and lob a few grenades into the radio room to permanently silence it. I guess that would be a reason to go, to get the code books, if that's of any use. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like there are optional objectives. Yeah. Uh, and They're uh, trying to get, like, unlock DK mode or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The full crew of the ship are taken prisoner, but in the mess hall, a few try to break loose and a gunfight ensues, leading to several casualties on both sides. When Pew blows his whistle three times to order everyone back to the Phoebe, Lovecroft is distracted just long enough for one of the officers to toss a chair at him and then beat him against a wall. They try to shoot him with his own gun, but it jams, so they punch him out and steal his handgun before leaving the room. And don't shoot him with the handgun. Yeah, thankfully. A man, I think the spotlight sailor, limps around the deck knocking over oil barrels as the rest of the group handcuff the prisoners to a railing on the deck. Why is he setting fire to his own ship? Uh, Because that was the plan to to blow up the ship in case they were ever attacked. I don't know. Maybe he's trying to make it harder for them to get off? Maybe. It's just... It's a little muddled here because... They're trying to destroy the ship to keep the ship from getting destroyed. And it's like, they're literally not here to kill you. They're here to destroy and sink the ship. That's it. And you're helping. Pew asks after Lovecroft and is told where he was last seen and moves in after him, shooting a few sailors along the way. One tosses a grenade down and Pew's man throws it back up. Pew finds Lovecroft still breathing on the ground and carries him down to the Phoebe. We get one wide insert of an Ehrenfels miniature ablaze in the water. The German crew has been handcuffed to the side of the ship, and Pew gives them the keys to unlock themselves, announcing in German that the ship is about to explode. Wilton is asked to start the engines again, and they are unresponsive. The spotlight sailor catches up with Pew before he can evacuate, and Pew kills the man, but not before the sailor hits him in the shoulder, knocking him overboard. From the water, Pew orders the Phoebe to leave, and a man dives overboard to rescue him. Bill, don't stand above! Get us underway! Wounded men are being treated all over the deck. Charlie is frantically working at the engine to get them clear of the limpet mines before it's too late. They move the wounded men below deck. Yogi says it's two minutes to Incredible Mr. Limpet. What? Incredible Mr. Limpet. Isn't that what it's called? The movie? Yeah. Yeah. It's not about mines on the side of a boat. It is. You haven't seen it then. Clearly. Wilton jams the starter again and we hear the engine slowly turn over and achieve a sort of rhythm and then it's back up to speed, and they race away from the Ehrenfels at their top speed of, like, seven knots or whatever they could get. So here's a question. Yeah. So we're all sitting here on this big, uh, on this boat next to this big boat that's about to explode. Obviously not the place you want to be, which is why they're all freaking out that they need to get this engine running. Yeah. But there's also a dude that was going to just take them out of Goa if they uh, anybody fell overboard with a boat. Yeah, just so jump like, over and swim. Why to that? hasn't everyone just jumped overboard at this point and just swam for well, it? Well, because some are injured, so they yeah. they wouldn't even make it to shore probably. Yeah, but I mean, like they knew what they signed up for. I don't know. I feel like a couple guys behind to try to get the boat going, stay with the injured dudes, and everyone else save yourselves, mm-hmm. swim for it. Well, that's not what they did but they got the boat moving at the last second. Stewart watches from shore as the ship goes up and explosions. German sailors are jumping overboard a dozen at a time. Pew and Grease watch the men jumping overboard as explosions rage behind them, and Pew can't help but feel sorry for them. Bill, I... I wouldn't know how to begin to thank you and the light horse. 
I have a feeling they'll be thanking you. I know I am. As far as I can tell, the only confirmed casualty of the mission is Jack Cartwright back at the hotel. Yeah. Because everybody else got shot, but then we see them getting loaded up and treated on the boat. So the only person that died is the only guy that didn't go on the boat, other than uh, Roger Moore. I mean, yeah, we do definitely know that Jack died, but th- the other guys, I- I'm not totally convinced all the dudes they threw over their shoulders were alive back on the boat. Sure, I- and I agree that it looked, especially in, that, in the mess hall, like some of them died. Yeah. But... We never see anyone's face that's confirmed dead. That's true. We cut back to the radio room on the German U-boat, and they're not getting a transmission. One officer assumes it must just be a quiet night with no worthy targets. Pew wanders below deck to see to the injured men and offers them a thumbs up for their troubles. A title explains, During the first 11 days of March 1943, U-boats sank 12 Allied ships in the Indian Ocean. After the light horse raid on Goa, only one ship was lost in the remainder of that month. Maurice Binder's patented circle titles roll into frame, and we get side-by-side photos of the cast and then the real historical figures they're meant to portray. After the first three, though, we ditch that system and instead show two different characters side-by-side, which is confusing at first because one is a man and one is a woman, so I was like, wow, Trevor Howard looks nothing like Barbara <laughs> Kellerman. Yeah. <laughs> That's a terrible match. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> We're also, um, we're also treated to a very Bond-esque closing song. Yeah, for sure. Um, I enjoyed this movie on my second watch. On my first watch, I was just kind of like, eh, whatever. Like, generic war movie. I don't really need this. But the second time around, when I was paying attention to the details, I actually liked the characters a lot. All the Calcutta guys are great. Mm-hmm. Um, they're fun character actors. And the mission's kind of fun, even if there's a few kind of plot hole moments to it. I don't know. It's... It's okay. Like, they, I definitely enjoyed the end bit when they're actually, like, doing the mission and right. on the boat. And the beginning's all right. I honestly think there's a solid 45 minutes I could yeah. cut out of the middle because it, this movie was way too long. Two hours is, is too much for this, for sure. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think you could cut the entire botched trumpetta kidnapping. Um yeah. Because that, that really doesn't help too much. Honestly, I feel bad saying this, but you could take everything with Roger Moore out. The whole love story yeah. thing is kind of irrelevant. Mm-hmm. Um, I I would have liked, and I because I again I I know that there's a historical accuracy somewhat to this. I I would have liked the drunkenness to actually have come into play. Yeah, like yeah. like they're 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 building it up so much that take a swig now, take a swig later, dump it all over your clothes. I, I thought it would have been a lot more fun to have them all just acting like drunk businessmen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, While they were doing all this. And, like, getting into, like, scuffles with like, themselves or the sailors. And the sailors are trying to... Drunken master them. Like, you yeah. know, like, knock out a few Germans by, <laughs> you know, accident. Like, like oh, you want to fight, huh? But, like, you know... He what, just pulls out his gun and he goes, quarterly reports, as he's firing <laughs> on the people. Uh, I, I really would have liked that. I also um, feel like... It's actually a pretty dumb move to douse yourself with whiskey before this covert mission because they're going to smell you coming around the corner. Like, yeah. Or you're they, walking all, around. they all get set ablaze trying to leave because <laughs> yeah. they're also covered in alcohol. <laughs> oh, why did we do this? This was a terrible idea. I, I liked this movie. Uh, I think a little trimming and I have a personal preference as far as how the story should have gone. Yeah. Um, But uh, I feel like it's very in line. I, I don't think it has the maybe the the epic scope kind of of something like the great escape. Right. Um, but you know, as someone who is a fan of things like force sent from Navarone or guns of Navarone and, yeah. 
And I mean, I I, I already want to see Wild Geese. Right. Yeah. Me too. And of, I and I like movie. Folks. I think that this is not as good as Folks, but no, the fact that close. it's based on an actual historical event is kind of neat. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I didn't realize that until the, uh, very, end. the very end. And yeah. so I didn't have that appreciation for it while I was watching it. Yeah. Which I think, you know, I, it probably shouldn't make a difference. But sometimes it does. You're like, wait, this actually happened well, that, while you're watching it. I think the thing that's neat about it being a real event is that these were actually really old dudes that mm-hmm. pulled this mission off. Like these were guys who literally were too old to fight in World War One, And here they are contributing in a major way to World War Two. Because they got, you know, that, like, the elderly veterans dream job of, oh, this crazy mission that we need a bunch of crazy old people to pretend to be drunk and defeat the Nazis. And it's like, okay, awesome. This is cool. This is what I wanted to do with my last year. But that's not the story that we get. No, not exactly. I wanted drunken old people. Yeah. Yeah. It's still fun, though. Um, Do we know where this is going letterboxed? Did we letterbox this? Doing it right now. I'm going to give this a thumbs down, by the way. I did enjoy the film, but um, I think watch Folks. Uh, You don't have to see this one, really. I mean, I wasn't a huge fan of Folks to begin with. I really like Folks. I know you do, but I wasn't the biggest fan of it. It was just okay. This one isn't as good as Folks. (laughs) Yeah. Richard, thumbs up, thumbs down? Um, It's a thumbs up for me. Okay. I I, I would certainly recommend... like. There'd be people I would recommend this type of movie to. Yeah, like your dad. Th- yeah, my dad. <laughs> well, my dad um, isn't as uh, as much a fan as like of like British operations. So like he he's not a fan of. Uh, uh, oh god, why, why am I blanking on that film right now? Uh, the Operation Market Garden film, Bridge Too Far. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, because that's more of a British operation. He he'd be more. He's more interested in like the Wake Island or they were they were expendable kind of stuff. Um, but, uh, like he would definitely like have this on in the background. Yeah. yeah. Like this would be total background noise movie for him. So, uh, it gives a thumbs up for me for that. Where do you have it letterboxed? Um, I have it pretty high. I have it at number 19. Okay. Um, so it's below the hand, but above cattle Annie and little bridges. And we're out of 75 now. Yeah. And I would say that I like this better than folks. Only because of the his- the history involved. Sure. Um, not so much for the Roger Moore. I think Roger Moore was much f- more fun in Folks. Yeah, he was more fun in Folks, and also I feel like the story was a lot tighter. And this is deep into Bond. Yeah. Like I mean, this is like right because he did four before this and three after. Yeah. So he was he's busy, you know. I have this at thirty seven out of seventy five, so okay. it's kind of in the middle. Um, and I agree, it's right by. Uh, it's right underneath uh, Catalani and Little Bridges for me, um, but above Ford Apache, the Bronx. I actually have it lower. I have it in 49th out of 75, which puts it right under Going Ape and just above Graduation Day. That's an interesting variance. Usually uh, yeah. we don't like I, f- I feel like the last couple of films we've all have been reasonably close in number. Yeah. Well, the problem is that I I kind of like everything down to about 60. Yeah, well, that's what Out I was going to say. You actually like so many more on your list. Like the the that area for me is where it starts to drop off. Let me look at the, where's the first one that I don't like. <laughs> yeah, about about sixty because I would say Backroads is the the point where if if it was on TV I would not watch it. 
But even if Firecracker <laughs> was on TV, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to sit through the rest of this. Yeah, you have about twice as many films that you'd be willing to randomly watch yeah. than I would. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Wow, my, 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 my I really don't like starts around 26. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, looking, I was like, yeah. I'm so sorry, Richard. Yeah, I don't really like <laughs> any of these films. Sorry for putting you through this podcast. Our director here was Andrew V. McClaglin. He previously directed Hellfighter and McClintock. Last year, he directed Folks. Technically, 1980 saw the release of both Folks and the Seawolves in the UK, but Seawolves didn't get to America until the following year. So maybe this came together really quickly, too. We'll cover his work next with Sahara in 1983. His son, Josh McClaglin, is an EP on a bunch of X-Men movies. He also serves as an assistant director on a lot of big titles like Avatar and Titanic for Cameron, those same X-Men movies, and most recently, Free Guy, which he also EP'd. Andrew's daughter, Mary McClaglin, is also a regular EP on titles like Free Guy, Bad Times at the El Royale, and War for Planet of the Apes. So those are cool titles to have an EP credit on. Mm-hmm. Novelist James Leeser, he also wrote the books adapted into Roy Ward Baker's The One That Got Away and Val Guest's Where the Spies Are. The writer here, Reginald Rose, was the original author of the 1954 teleplay Twelve Angry Men and the screenwriter of the Sidney Lumet 1957 film of the same name. Later this season, he's also the credited screenwriter of Whose Life Is It Anyway? Music here was from Roy Budd. He was the composer for Get Carter and Zeppelin before this, as well as Andrew V. McClaglin's 1978 film The Wild Geese and its 1985 sequel from director Peter Hunt, who is another Bond director. Cinematographer Tony Emi was a DP on Folks last year and later Enemy Mine. Editor John Glenn, this was his final editing credit after cutting Bond films On Her Majesty's Secret Service, Spy Who Loved Me, and Moonraker. He's also a regular Bond director for titles like For Your Eyes Only Later This Season, A View to a Kill, The Living Daylights, License to Kill. He also directed Aces, Iron Eagle 3, the only one of the four not directed by Sidney J. Fury. Yeah. Uh, as, as soon as I saw him as editor John Glenn, I was like, oh, is that the director? Yeah. Like, he's editing editing other Roger Moore properties. Yeah, it's funny. I feel like um, that happens a lot with Bond directors, that they that they go back to full-time editing after their work on Bond films. It's, it's impressive. But I remember because uh, the one editor that worked on, like, the first five Bond films then took over as director for On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Mm-hmm. Which was that John Glenn? No. No. That was John Peter Glenn. Hunt. Yeah, that was yeah. Peter Hunt, who I mentioned before, had directed the sequel to The Wild Geese. Gregory Peck was Colonel Lewis Pugh. He's Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, which he won an Oscar for. He was Joe Bradley in Roman Holiday, Captain Ahab in the 56 Moby Dick. And I just recently caught The Boys from Brazil for the first time, where he plays Dr. Joseph Mengele, who's like just the worst person in history yeah the real colonel lewis Pugh survived long enough to attend an early preview of the film and the wikipedia page for this movie has photos of him in the theater watching it roger moore played captain gavin stewart he's the third james bond in the feature film series starting with live and let die and carrying through to a view to a kill david niven was colonel wh grease he's our second james bond actor from 1967's casino royale he's also sir charles Lytton in the pink panther one of my favorites from him is Dick Charleston, the Thin Man parody character in Neil Simon's Murder by Death. Yeah. Which I think it's him and Maggie Smith, right? Or right, Dick right. and Dora. Niven and Peck had previously appeared together in The Guns of the Navarone, along with the Seawolves co-stars Alan Cuthbertson and Percy Herbert. 
the most British names I've ever heard. <laughs> Alan Cuthbertson and Percy Herbert. <laughs> Sir Walter Rumterfrabble. <laughs> <laughs> Is that from Gravity Falls? Yeah. That's <laughs> one of those soap operas that Grunkle Stan's always watching. Yeah. But both Niven and Peck were excluded from Force 10 from Navarone due to their advanced ages. This is the third of four collaborations between Niven and Moore after The King's Thief and Escape to Athena, but before Curse of the Pink Panther. Trevor Howard played Jack Cartwright. He was Major Calloway in The Third Man, and earlier this season, he was Windwalker in Windwalker. He played the old Native American man and the guy who wanted to avenge his son. Mm. Barbara Kellerman played Mrs. Cromwell. This was her feature film debut. She's the White Witch in the late 80s BBC production of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. She was just Angela in the Shadmock story from The Monster Club. She's the one whose face got melted. I knew she looked familiar. She was actually brought on to replace Diana Rigg, which is obviously a bummer because it would have reunited her with Avengers co-star Patrick McNee. And obviously it's another Bond connection because she's married to James Bond in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. Her father... Kellerman's father was Jewish and fled Nazi Germany to teach physics at the University of Leeds, and her mother was instrumental in the French resistance in World War II, so she has a lot of familial connections to World War II. Patrick McNee was Major Yogi Crossley. He was Tibbet in A View to a Kill with Roger Moore. As a result, this is the second of three movie appearances alongside Sir Roger Moore after Sherlock Holmes in New York. He was also John Steed on the Avengers TV series, and we just had him as Dr. Wagner in The Howling earlier this season. It's strange that you look at this movie and it seems, and maybe it's just the mental that this is supposed to be taking place in the past. It does feel older than The Howling. Yeah. Yeah, for mm-hmm. sure. Patrick Allen played Colin McKenzie. He was Detective Pearson in Dial M for Murder. Wolf Collar played Trompetta. He's Dietrich in Raiders, just down the line for us. He's Schwimmer in The Boys from Brazil and a German commander in Wonder Woman 1. So he he played Nazis for a long time. <laughs> Poor guy just kept playing Nazis. Uh, we covered his work last season as de Goyer in Rough Cut, which I think might be the Nazi character who they meet in Amsterdam when they're like, oh, are you okay with killing people? And he's like, I like it. <laughs> that a David Niven. Yeah, David Niven was the, yeah. was the inspector, yeah. George McKell played Aaron Fell's captain. He was Lieutenant Dietrich in The Great Escape, one of the guards. Bernard Archard played Underhill. He was Elrig in Krull. Martin Benson played Mr. Montero. He was Father Spoleto in The Omen. That's one of the guys with the knives trying to kill Sam Neill. He's also Solo in Goldfinger, and we saw him earlier this season in The Sphinx. Faith Brooke played Mrs. Grease. We had her as the Prime Minister in Folks last season. She's Louisa Bradley in The Razor's Edge, which I actually love. And she's back later this season as Lucy's mother in Eye of the Needle. Donald Houston played Hilliard. He's Acrisius in Clash of the Titans right around the corner. Terrence Longden played Malvern. He's Drusus in Ben-Hur. And he appeared alongside a different Bond, Sean Connery, in 1958's Another Time, Another Place. Michael Medwin played Radcliffe. He was Scrooge's nephew Harry in the 1970 Scrooge. He's a doctor in Never Say Never Again with another Bond. William Morgan Shepard played Lovecraft. He's the man in the pub in Elephant Man. He was Ranulph in Hawk the Slayer last season. He was also Sweeney in Lassiter, which we just watched off the clock. He's also Captain Witwicky, Shia's grandpappy and the discoverer of Arctic Megatron in the first Transformers film. And he was Dr. Zito in a couple of MacGyver episodes. Yeah. I, he's got the most amazing voice 
It's uh, great. Because, uh, you know, you hear him in, in cartoons and things like that all the time. Yeah. Didn't he also do a guest appearance on the MacGyver reboot as, like, someone pretending to be Dr. Zito or something like that? Um, oh, no. It was his son. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was his son was in the episode. But um, he actually just passed away, I think. Uh, yeah, not 20, too long 2019 ago. or something. John Standing played Finley. He was Fox in The Elephant Man last season. The other doctor that Treves is always competing with at the start of the film. Graham Stark played Manners. He was a blind man in Superman 3, and we saw him last season as Sparrow in Hawk the Slayer, because everybody in that movie has bird names. You have Crow, Hawk, and Sparrow. Those are all the credits I had for this one. I mean, we already talked about Maurice Binder, so... Yeah. Yeah, but... Yeah, as soon as I saw his name in the credits, I was just if like, you're not aware, Maurice Binder does all the titles for all the James Bond movies, dating back to Doctor No, um, up through I think the end of the Roger Moore run. Yeah. I, I don't think uh, he did the Dalton ones. Um, yeah, I don't recall. I think that's everything for the Sea Wolves. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share with us, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Where, as I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, click that subscribe button. It's in there in the bottom right corner. It's a little red thing. Go ahead and tap on that. And then we get uh, imaginary numbers. It makes me happy. It gives me a little dopamine. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Tuck Everlasting, which IMDb describes like so. In turn of the 20th century upstate New York, Winnie Foster, a 12-year-old girl, discovers a family living in the woods near her family's home who never ages thanks to a magical spring they drink from, and she's entrusted to keep their secret and becomes involved in their lives. We leave you now with a trailer, if there is one, for Tuck Everlasting, which may or may not have ever been released anywhere. It definitely doesn't have a trailer. <laughs> we leave you now. We leave you. You all right, madam? Hush up. My stars. That's the fairy music. I haven't heard it in years. Winifred, that's the music the elves made that I told you about. I haven't heard it in ages. This is the first time you've heard it, isn't it? Wait till we tell your father. Wait. You say you've heard that music before. Sounds like your music backs to me. My, my. It's the elves you heard. Oh, did I say that? It's the elves themselves. Now they have to gather together every so often in the woods and, and then they dance maybe five times in a lifetime. You can't believe your ears. What can you believe? Well, we better go in. Good night. Isn't that the prettiest music you ever did here? Soon they'll be dancing around under the moon. And the bears and the foxes will come out and join them. It's no night for a little girl to be out. Oh, and the woods tomorrow just shine.